Well, good evening. It's nice to be here, real privilege, and I bring you greetings from my church in Holland, in Soest, a place near Utrecht, which is in the middle of the country, and I hope that you will allow me to bring your greetings back to them, as well as to the next place where I hope to be in the coming weeks. Tonight, um, we have a passage, we will be looking at a passage that is rather long. In fact, it's too long to deal with it in a few minutes or even in the evening or in a day or in a few weeks' time. I would like to encourage you, when you come home, to read the passage, Numbers 13 and 14, and maybe to open your Bibles, if you have them with you, and look up the verses that I will mention as we go along. Let me just tell you where we are, the setting. It's about two years, um, Numbers 13, it's about two years after God's people have left Egypt. We will remember that it's about 70, 73 people, 73 people that came there at the invitation of Joseph and the Pharaoh of his days, Jacob, his 11 brothers, his father, his 11 brothers and their families, and now, for, and then 400 year la- years later, the situation changed completely. When we look at the passages in Exodus where the deliverance of Israel is being prepared, we see a people that are suffering. It's partly, well, maybe mainly because Pharaoh is scared of them. They have increased in numbers. The 73 have now turned into 600,000 men, women and children not counted. So you can add up and come to well over a million, maybe even two million people. And Pharaoh is afraid that these people might someday take over his power and take over his country. So he wants to get rid of them. And he gives them slave, hard, the hard work of a slave. And they suffer and they cry out to God for years. And we know the moment when God responds and meets with Moses, who by that time lives in the desert, and says to Moses, I've heard my people crying. I always wonder why, if he heard, he didn't respond sooner. Do you sometimes wonder that in your own life? Why he let them suffer for so long? But we know, knowing God and knowing that he is trustworthy, that that time was for some reason necessary. And the time when God called his people out of Egypt was the right time, the right time in God's eyes. And so they are delivered, and we know the story of the ten plagues, the the mysteries, the miracles that God performs in that country, the fear of Pharaoh and his people. We know how he destroys the Egyptians and how he delivers his people. We know of the blood of the lamb smeared on their doorposts, and we remember, hopefully, our own deliverance and are trusting the blood of Christ to save us from God's judgment. And so they set out on their journey towards the promised land. And what we read at the beginning from Deuteronomy is the promise that God gave them, the description of the land that they would receive, that he had prepared for them, the land where they would live. It's a wonderful description, isn't it? Deuteronomy 8. It's about springs of water. It's about springs flowing in the valleys and the hills. It's about wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, honey, 
a land where bread will not be scarce and people will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron. It's a wonderful description. And when you read it, you cannot help but think of Jesus. If you were to summarize the description in one word, it might be fullness or abundance. But many of the, of the things mentioned in this, in this description of the promised land, they apply to Jesus. The springs of water, the pools of water, the land with wheat and barley. Didn't Jesus say that he was the living water, the living bread? The vines, didn't he say that he was the vine and we are the branches? So many things in that description apply to Jesus and to the fullness that he embodies, the fullness of God in him. And then that sentence, you will lack nothing in that land, Psalm 23, where David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall lack nothing. This land is the inheritance of the people. It is like a present that they only have to unwrap and receive, it's there. And the thing that they should do is keep that in their minds, foremost in their minds and in their hearts as they travel. It's something that should grow in them, as it were, so that they will move forward and they will press forward and they will have this major longing. Let's get there. Let's get there and let us taste. Let us experience what God has in store for us, the fullness they go out of slavery to freedom. They have been set free from Egypt. Now they have to learn to live as free people. They were slaves. Now they may embrace their new identity as free people and beloved children of God. And the big question is, are they going to grasp that? Will that become real to them? Will they learn that? Will they make it? We see when we follow them throughout the book of Exodus that they lack something. They lack that very longing. They lack that eagerness. They lack that, that pressing forward to receive, to grasp what God has promised. And because the longing is not there, there is no perseverance. Do you know that from your own life, that when you're striving towards something that's really important for you, you will somehow persevere? But if it isn't so important or so real to you, you will sooner give up. They lack the longing. They lack the vision, one could say. And so they lack the perseverance. They want things to be easy. They are somehow expecting a smooth journey. And they behave like spoiled children. I'm so embarrassed often when I read the story. And I see these people and I realize how much they are like me. They grumble. They're often discontent. They expect things to be a certain way, and if they turn out another way, they ask God why. Or they question him. They ask, are you even there? Are you seeing me? They tell him they don't understand. They tell him they deserve better. They object. They sigh. They grumble. And it's no wonder to see that the Israelites are not making any progress in those days. They're hardly moving forward. And all one hears is they're complaining, complaining against Moses and against God. God, meanwhile, shows himself to be a loving father, a wonderful shepherd, a father, a shepherd, 
They don't manage to live like his children. They are still slaves. They are fearful, insecure. They don't want to grow up, it seems. They don't want to accept responsibility. Some of them change. Some of them become men and women after God's heart. But the majority has not managed to let go of Egypt. And so you see them looking back and longing for the life in Egypt. They seem to forget or to have forgotten that it was bad there. They seem to have forgotten that they were slaves there. They tell Moses in Exodus 14, Didn't we say to you in Egypt, so already then, before the journey started, Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Yes, they meet with obstacles. They meet with difficulties. It's just like real life, isn't it? There are days without water. And there are days when the water is bitter. There are days maybe when they're sick, when they don't feel well. It's just like real life. But the Lord is there all along. And he wants to bring them to that place where they belong. He wants to show them his fullness. Now in Numbers 13, they have reached the borders of the promised land. They are on the threshold of a new life. Their inheritance, the fullness promised to them, is now within their reach. It took only a little over two years, and they are there. And so 12 men, each the head of a tribe of Israel, are sent out to explore the land. We're now in number 13, and we look at uh, verse 16. Moses sent out um, 12 men to explore the land. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said... Go up through the Negev and on into the whole hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or is it bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees on it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. And then in brackets, it was the season for the first ripe grapes. Go up through the Negev on into the hill country. Very good advice. Because when you go up, as Jesus so often did, he went into the mountains to pray, you have a different perspective than when you stay in the valley. Go up, seek God, and you will have a different perspective. See what the land is like. Observe it. Have a look at it. Have a careful look at it. And bring back some of the fruit. After 40 days, the explorers return. And we read in verse 23 that they bring, that they have cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes that two men need to carry on a pole between them. They also bring pomegranates and figs, all things that were mentioned. But what catches my imagination always is this single cluster of grapes that needed two men to carry it. Can you imagine? I've never seen such grapes in Tesco's or on the market. I've never seen such a big cluster of grapes. It's God proving, showing his fullness. It's God encouraging them. It's God saying to them, this is what I promised you. And isn't it abundance? Isn't it fullness? Here is Ephesians 3. 
God can do immeasurably more than we think or ask or imagine. They bring good news when they come back. They say in verse 27 of Numbers 13, we went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. Do you sometimes use that word? It does. They don't just say it flows with milk and honey. It seems they want to emphasize that this is really true and this is really good. The way we sometimes do when we want to really convince people when we feel they're not believing us. We say truly, really, this is so, don't we? And this is what the explorers say, it does flow with milk and honey. So when I reach this point, I always think now we're going to have a feast. Now they're going to start partying. Now they're going to start singing. Now they're going to celebrate, much like in Exodus 15, when they had just passed through the Red Sea with all the miracles when the Egyptians had been destroyed by God and they reached the other side safely. And we see Miriam and Moses leading the people in song and dance. Miriam, over 90, dancing before the women, singing the top of her voice, It's another of these moments that I would have liked to witness. The joy, the sheer joy, the sheer celebration. But in Numbers 13, there is no singing. There is no celebration. There is proof of God's goodness. There is proof of God's faithfulness. It's really and truly, as he had said. But verse 28 starts with a dramatic word, a three-letter word. B-U-T. But the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Enoch there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, all of them strong enemies of Israel, live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Do you see what's happening? They're undermining God's truth. They're coming with a human objection, the but, the however, of the human hesitation, of the human thinking this is impossible, of the human reasoning. It looks good, but we can't do it. It would be foolish to try to enter this country, to try to besiege it. In verse 30, we read that Caleb was silencing the people before Moses. Meaning that they were upset. That they were, that there was a restlessness, unrest in the camp. They had just been told good news. But the however, the but seems to speak louder than the good news. And Caleb is silencing the people and says, we should go up and we should take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. Here is a statement of faith, isn't it? He has seen the very same thing. But he has come to a different conclusion. He has interpreted what he saw differently than his colleagues. Verse 31, but the man who had gone up with him said, we cannot attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. 
We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Enoch come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our eyes and we looked the same to them. You know what? I always thought that only women exaggerate. These men are really exaggerating. They're saying that all the people are giants. Do you believe that? There were giants in those days, absolutely true, but it cannot be true that all the people were giants. Do you think the land really devoured its people? If so, why were there people there? They should have all been dead. They are exaggerating because they want to state their case. They don't want to go in. They don't dare to go in. One thing they see clearly. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. We seemed like grasshoppers. Very true. We people are not very impressive by ourselves, are we? In Isaiah 41, 14, God calls his people a worm. He calls them little Israel. In other words, things should never depend on us. We are quite helpless, but with God. Isaiah also says, Do not be afraid, O worm, Jacob, O little Israel, for I myself will help you. I will make you into, I will, I will. Okay, you are a grasshopper. And suddenly, I remember the eighth plague in Egypt. Remember the poor little helpless grasshoppers? Remember what they did when God was steering them? It was one of the fierce plagues that shattered Pharaoh, that ruined the land. A grasshopper, maybe insignificant by itself, but with God. We may be insignificant by ourselves, and we are, but with God. It's a different story. And so here we get the godly objection. We have our but, we have our however, but he too. For you, things may be impossible, but with me nothing is impossible, says God. That is the attitude that we need. The attitude that God wants to implant into us, that we believe that our God is never helpless. Our God is never at his wit's end. Our God can do anything. I think David had understood that. Isn't he the one who says, with my God I can jump over a mountain, I can scale a mountain, uh, uh, a wall? And weren't the walls the very things that intimidated the people of Israel? Now the Lord says of Caleb, I find that very interesting, in Numbers 14:24, my servant Caleb has a different spirit and he follows me wholeheartedly. That's one chapter on. My servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly. Remember, he was the one who said, let us go. When everybody else, the majority, said we cannot do it, he said, let us go. I think that's incredible. When the majority, if not all of the people around me say we cannot do something, who am I to speak up and to say we can? The man, the woman can who knows his or her God. And who has a different spirit. Who is inspired by God's spirit to look at things differently. Who is clothed, as Jesus calls it in the New Testament, with power from above. Remember Pentecost? When the Holy Spirit was poured out, remember how the people were changed? How Peter, 
who once was so scared that he betrayed his own master, stood up and preached a sermon that people just heard and said, this can't be true, isn't he an illiterate fisherman? The spirit of God had come over him. And I think it's this spirit that Caleb had. Caleb did knew that the power within him was not his, it was God's. And he knew that he could do something which seemed, or which was, I should say, impossible for man. May I ask you a personal question? Where are the fortified cities in your own life? And who are the giants in your life that you might be afraid of? Where in your life are you standing before a wall maybe and saying, this is a wall I cannot walk through. This is a situation where I've reached the end of my tether, where I just don't know what to do, where I have reached the point where I say, this is impossible. This can never change. This can never be altered. I have reached the end. This is where the door is closed. This is where the door is too strong. This is where people are too strong. Who are the giants in your life? And where are the fortified cities? Where are you facing a closed door? What is it you fear? It's a very personal question, isn't it? But it's an important question. And another question is, what would it mean practically if your human objection, I can't do this, impossible, this situation cannot be changed, if you would change that and say, God, I know that what for me is impossible is not never impossible for you. What would change in your life if you reckon you would reckon with his power rather than stumbling over your own helplessness? and powerlessness. What would it mean to stand up and to move forward? What would it need for you to stand up and to move forward? Could it be possible that God is challenging you to take possession of new territory in your life, of moving into a new sphere of service or work? Could it be that God is asking you to move on and do something new that you're scared about, or to trust him for something new which you feel is impossible. The Bible says, and we read it, that our Lord can do immeasurably more than we ask or think. Ephesians 3, verse 20. Let's not just nod at this verse and say, sounds good, great. Let us say, God, show me in my life and my situation what that means. And give me... Help me. Give me the faith to believe it and to step out and to dare do something that is impossible. We come to Numbers 14 and we still see this whole crowd of people shouting and screaming. There even is a night of weeping. Numbers 14 verse 1. That night all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Can you sort of feel the atmosphere? It was horrible, wasn't it? Rather than rejoicing, there is panic. And there's this great unwillingness 
to go forward. They're shouting and screaming, they're crying. And in the midst of this, if you read it when you come home, when you read it, we see Moses and Aaron fall flat on the ground before God, and we see Joshua and Caleb, Caleb tearing their clothes in mourning. Caleb was not the only explorer who believed. Joshua, his colleague, did as well. Then in verse 8, those who believe Moses, Aaron, Caleb, Joshua, say to the people, we're in Numbers 14, if the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. And then they warn the people, only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid. Rebelling is what they've done all along. And they've been afraid all along. I look at this sentence, if the Lord is pleased with us, and I think, wouldn't he be? Doesn't he love us the way we are? Ungratefulness, grumbling, and a lack of faith included? Doesn't he love us the way we are? Doesn't he know our weaknesses? Doesn't he accept them? He does. He knows who we are, and he loves us, but he also expects us to grow up. He, has, he expects us not to remain babies, but to grow up like we expect a human baby to grow up. It would be strange, wouldn't it, if a baby was still a baby in 30 years' time, still in its cradle. We would not look at it in the same way as we looked at it during the first few weeks of life when it was supposed to be a baby. We would say something is awfully wrong. God loves us the way we are, but he wants us to grow up. He expects us to grow up. He expects us to change. And he expects respect. He is the Holy One. It seems in Numbers 14 that God's patience has been tried too long. In verse 11, God says to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? There's a warning here, isn't there, for us as well. How long will we grumble? How long will we stand up and look at the impossibilities? How long will we blame God for what is going wrong? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed against, amongst them? I will strike them down. And then Moses rises to the occasion and we see him pleading with God and reminding God of his character. Verse 19, in accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, God. We see Moses reminding God of his character and his reputation. What will the heathen country think? That you were unable to bring your people into the promised land? If the Lord is pleased with us. In 1 Corinthians 10 verse 5, it says, Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. It seemed God had reached the end of his patience. He forgave them. Let's remember that. He forgave them. They were still his children, but the disappointment of God is almost, you can almost feel it in this chapter. The disappointment of God, of the holy God, who has been so faithful throughout the years, who has given his people all they needed. And all they keep saying is, if only we had stayed in Egypt. They're holding on to their old life. They're idealizing it rather than looking forward and running after, pressing forward like Paul did to reach the goal. In verse 28 of Numbers 14, we read that God says, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. And in verse 25, we have an absolute low 
in the history of Israel. Turn back tomorrow and set out towards the desert along the route to the Red Sea. Where did the people of Israel come from? From the Red Sea? How long had they traveled? A little over two years. Where were they now? On the threshold of a new life, on the threshold of the fullness of God. Here was the promised land. And because of their unbelief, because of their grumbling, because of their muttering, God says, now turn around and go back. Back to where you came from. And when you read the story well, there's no time to go into it very deeply. We realize that for every day that the explorers were in the promised land, 40 days, the people of God get one year in the desert. For every day that the explorers were in the promised land, those who did not believe God get one year in the desert. And in the 40 years that they will dwell there, that older generation, those who were 20 years and older when they left Egypt, those who were big enough, adult enough to remember what they were seeing, the miracles of God, his faithfulness, they would die. So what does that mean? It means that a whole generation did not reach the best, did not taste, did not experience what God had in store for them. It is wonderful to see how God leads them throughout the 40 years when they are in the desert. It's wonderful to see that even there he is a faithful father and a faithful shepherd. In Deuteronomy we're told that they had everything they needed. Shoes, clothes, food, drink, everything. He looked after them. But they didn't get any further. There was no progress. And so they had really missed the best. And it was only the younger generation that under Joshua would enter into the promised land. The others died in the desert. Were they lost? No, they were not lost. They were God's children. And he looked after them. He didn't let go of them. But he withheld something from them. Or should we say that they withheld it from themselves? The promised land had been there right before their eyes, right before their noses. And they had turned back. They had refused believing. They had refused to believe that they could take it, that they could have it. It was a, an act of disobedience, really. And the story, this grim story, shows us that disobedience has consequences. The unwillingness to take steps of obedience, steps of faith, has consequences. The decision to rather stay where we are instead of moving on has consequences. We miss out the best, the fullness. And throughout this passage, throughout the two chapters, there is a major question really. Who are you? Are you a desert child or are you a child of promise? Who do you want to be? Do you want to be a desert child looked after by God? but wandering around without really getting any further? Or do you want to be a child of promise, who is discovering more and more of the riches of God, of the riches of Christ? Not just, this is not just something for the future. So many of us think that the fullness is something to do with the time after we die. But God wants to give us fullness now in Christ. So much of it is available already to us now. And through his Holy Spirit, the one, the Holy Spirit that Caleb had, our eyes will be open to this truth. 
And we will feel the spurring on the, the, the being. We will be pushed forward, pressed forward to go for it. That's what God wants to see. Not sleepy Christians who think, let's stay where we are. And yes, it is bad. And yes, it is difficult. But that's the way life is. That's not what God wants to see. He wants to give us, even in our situations that are painful, that are difficult, of his fullness. He wants to give us new territories to live in, new ground to claim, to step into. He wants us to go forward. They missed the best, this whole generation. They lacked the fullness. There was no progress. There was no change. There was no renewal. All that because they had not dared to step out. They were meant for the hills, but they stayed in the valley. They were meant for the hills, but they stayed in the valley. They were free, and yet they were still imprisoned, bound and burdened by their discontent, their impatience, their lack of faith, their fear, maybe their sins, maybe their independence, maybe their pride. Another personal question in closing. Are there among us children of the desert? People who stayed behind. People who are maybe still imprisoned, though they are called to be free. People who still have this fearful attitude of a slave, rather than the joy and the faith of a child of God, who knows he's loved, who knows he's invited to ever move forward. Are there among us that live in the margin, in the borderland, rather than in the promised land? Can it be that you have missed the fullness of God simply because you have not reached out for it? Every Step Counts, that's the title that I would give to the sermon. It's the title of a, a new book that I'm working on about this topic. But one could also call it Discovering God's Possibilities. Let's go for that. Let's in our lives try to discover God's possibilities. Let's not stay stuck, stay put with our impossibilities. And I know the Lord to be one who will not put us to shame. When there is faith, when there is openness, when we dare to take steps of faith, he will be there to lead us on, to help us get to where he has meant us to be. And how wonderful it is when you discover new dimensions of his love, new dimensions of his forgiveness, new dimensions of his comfort, of his strength, of his patience. There's so much to discover of God, about God. And my wish would be for all of us that um, we would discover more of that. So that if we were to meet each other in a year's time, we would have no new stories to tell, new adventures to share about where God took us, what new things he showed us, what he did in our lives, what maybe he did through us, 
God is looking for men and women after his heart. Men and women whose deepest desires are God's desires, whose purposes are God's purposes. God is looking for people who become men and women, godly men and women. Men and women who will shine like stars in this world. Isn't that what Paul says in Philippians? We are to shine like stars amidst a wicked generation. But we can only do that when we, get, when we take God by his word, when we trust him. <coughs> and when we dare to step out and go for the new things that he has prepared for us. So let's leave the desert and go for the promises. And if we are in the desert, maybe we ought to think through whether this is a desert. The desert could also be a place that God gives us for a certain time to learn new lessons, to be pruned maybe. That's not the desert I'm talking about. I hope you get me. God wants us to leave this place where we grumble and mutter and say, this doesn't work. This is too much. This is too difficult. This is too risky. Let's go forward and discover more about God's possibilities. Amen.